let me just reflect for a moment. Okay, more than a few, more than a moment, a few moments about last Sunday night. February 4th, Super Bowl 52. My team was on the field. I understand there are some Pats fans amongst us, so I will seek to be very gracious. I truly will. I'll do my best. <laughs> but what amazed me is that a backup quarterback managed to win the MVP of the Super Bowl. It was the highest scoring Super Bowl of all time, any playoff game, and, and if I'm not mistaken, any NFL game ever. Brady threw for 500 plus yards, Nick Foles for about, what, 378, a backup quarterback. Let me just tell you, several years ago, he, he did play for the, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. Played for the Philadelphia Eagles, Michael Vick went down with an injury early in the season. He took the, the field, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, through for the rest of the season, 27 touchdowns and only two interceptions. It's phenomenal. They didn't come through as I was hoping in the playoffs. The next year, something happened. I don't know what it is. Could be coaching anything. But he began to throw anywhere from one to two interceptions per game. He got injured. Mark Sanchez took his place, finished out the season, and Nick Foles got traded. And his world just begins to spiral downward. He's traded to the Los Angeles Rams. Not that they're a bad team, okay? Came under a coaching regime that uh, has, the word is out, that really did not do well. I think uh, after a year or two, that whole team got fired. Regardless, uh, Nick Foles is a backup quarterback, if I'm not mistaken, for two years. And the doors are just closed. At the end of two years, he is so discouraged, he wants to leave the NFL. He confides with his brother. His brother encourages him. He actually stay in there. Andy Reid, who years ago was the Eagles coach, by the way, is now coaching for the Kansas City Chiefs and says, Nick, just come and join us. Nick joins them. He decides to stay in the NFL, joins them for one year. After that one year, he is traded this past season to the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, where am I going with all of this? Carson Wentz up for MVP, goes out with a knee injury. Nick Foles has to step in. Now, here's something that maybe you already know about Nick Foles. He's not just a Christian, but he is a strong Christian. He has a desire to one day pastor. He wants to proclaim Christ. There is a Bible study that is phenomenally growing on that team. If I mention names, many of you would recognize those names, starting players on the team. And they are sold out for Christ, including people like Carson Wentz and Trey Burton and so on. And they have had baptisms in their locker room, in their, you know, jacuzzi whirlpool. And they are seeking to influence people for Christ. So here is this no-name guy, some backup quarterback, washed out, steps onto the field and truly, after three games, the announcers, if you followed ESPN or anybody, you, they're saying, this guy, I don't think, they're, I don't think he's going to be able to do it. He's a washout. And so the Eagles stepped into their first game as an underdog. I'm not going to get into any more than that. What I'm really tempted to, oh, I'm so tempted. But against the, the best defense, probably in, 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 some of the, in, in much of the history of the NFL, the Eagles put it to him 38-7. I just had to say that. I just had to say that. And he steps onto the field with everybody doubting him in the Super Bowl, and they manage to pull out a 41-33 win, and Nick Foles as the MVP. Now, I don't know. That does something to me. I, the Scripture says in Psalm 91, because he loves me, because he acknowledges me, because he calls upon my name, I will answer, and it says, and I will honor him. I will honor him. Here's a guy ready to step out of the game as a nobody, and God puts him in a world limelight stage to perform for Christ, and the first thing out of his mouth was in it, as he's interviewed is, I want to give all praise to my God who is so good. Doug Peterson, the coach, I want to give glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God gave Nick Foles a platform. God did not give Nick Foles a stage. 
but he gave him a platform. And here is where I want to define for us what is a stage and what is a platform. Now, I realize this is my definition, but it's going to help us as we understand what are we seeking in life. Everybody loves an underdog coming through and winning an MVP, but this actually is a recipe that God has laid out for us in Scripture that we're going to see when he chooses to lift someone up and place them on a platform. You see, a stage is about me. A stage is about me seeking a place in which others can look at me and applaud me and say, way to go, Mike Curtis, we admire you. And there's something in the soul of man, even in the heart of Christians, that loves the admiration of men. That is what needs to be crucified because God doesn't want to give you, my friends, a stage. He wants to give you a platform. You see, on a platform... A platform is where God gives us an opportunity to stand and proclaim Jesus. Not me, but Jesus. And God has given Nick Foles a platform. Now, not just when he was on TV, but can you imagine the doors of opportunity, opportunity that God is now giving him to be able to minister and preach Jesus. That is a platform. The problem, though, is many and I would say even in the church, seek a stage and not a platform. Because when you seek a stage, it's about you. And that you, that Mike Curtis, needs to die and be crucified in order to step on God's platform. Let me tell you about Abraham Lincoln. We all know that Abraham Lincoln... laid out the Emancipation Proclamation, freed the slaves, and that took place in 1863. But many of us perhaps didn't realize that in 1809, Abraham Lincoln was born, and at the age of nine, his mother died. At the age of 23, he ran for the Illinois State Legislature and was defeated. Three years later, he was elected to that state legislature. One year later, at age 27, his fiancée, Ann Rutledge, died. It devastated him. What would you do if you were in Abraham Lincoln's shoes? Step out of the scene and take a hiatus for maybe the rest of your life. He chose not to do that. Several years later, at the age of 34, he marries... Mary Todd, and a year later, runs for the United States Congress and is defeated. This guy's not having too much success in life. Three years later, he's elected to the U.S. Congress. Two years later, he is defeated for re-election to the U.S. Congress. He's 40, and two years later, at age 42, his second son by the name of Eddie dies. And again, he is decimated and crushed. At age 47, five years later, he runs for the U.S. Senate and he is defeated. A year later, he, he seeks to be U.S. Vice President and he is defeated. Two years later, at age 50, he runs for the U.S. Senate again and he is defeated. And two years later, at age 52, he becomes the president of the United States. 1960, three years later, he signs the Emancipation Proclamation delivering the Gettysburg Address, and he declares all slaves freed. In 1950, 19, excuse me, 1864, he's 56 years of age, and he is elected to his second term. Give me just a, a, a few minutes here. I want to read something to you. Because just before his second term, we find this. 
For this one who is called the most religious of all of our presidents, for Abe Lincoln, who had tried so valiantly to keep God's law, there was something his closest associates viewed as lacking. His personal bodyguard expressed it well when he said, the misery that dripped from Lincoln as he walked was caused by his lack of personal faith. He grew up in church, sought to follow God's laws, and he felt regularly, confessed regularly how he had failed. And it says this, for all his knowledge of scripture and his association with the great ministers of his day, he failed for the better part of his life to comprehend that the salvation of the Lord is not by works which we, which we have done, and that it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves effort and piousness notwithstanding. It appears that the grace of God was to be understood by Lincoln in a personal relationship with the Savior established only after yet another private tragedy would compound his public sorrow. Tragedy was to make its presence known in the White House with the sudden death of little Willie, the the Lincoln's youngest child, and the apple of the president's eye. In the hour of his inconsolable grief, Willie's nurse shared with the president her very personal relationship with Jesus Christ and encouraged him to know the Savior. Lincoln, by his own testimony, did not immediately respond, but sometime later, he related to a friend his newfound peace. He said, when I left Springfield, I asked the people to pray for me. I was not a Christian. When I buried my son, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. With deep emotion, he told his friends that he had at last found the peace for which he longed. In the days that followed, Abe Lincoln worshipped regularly at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, not only on Sunday, but at the Wednesday evening prayer service as well. Dr. Phineas Gurley, the godly pastor of the church, became the the president's personal confidant and relates the fact that Lincoln had discussed with him his desire to make public his profession of faith and to unite in membership. Some months later, his second inaugural address was like the Gettysburg Address, a classic that reads like a sermon with two complete verses of Scripture and 14 references to God. But within weeks, the nation would mourn its tragic loss, and Abe Lincoln would dwell in the presence of Christ, whom he had now come to love and know so personally. Palm Sunday, 1865, was marked by rejoicing in the the city streets of the north, General Robert E. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox, and to all intents and purposes, the Civil War was over. The president gave thanks to God, and without a triumphal word, directed the attention of the nation to the task of restructuring the South and to the healing of our brothers and sisters. Five days later, on Good Friday, church bells began to peal in Washington, then in Philadelphia, then in New York City. And across the nation, the president is dead. Tragedy. Tragedy. There's no other word for it. Marked Abraham Lincoln's life. And I think it would be a fair question to ask, wow, why God? Why would you allow his children to die, his mother to die, a fiancé to die? Death surrounded him. Failure. How many times did he run for Congress or the Senate or Vice President nomination and he failed? Why would you allow this in his life, God? Why so many defeats and tragedies to arrive at only a few successes? I'm short on answers. I have only two that I can see. I'm sure there's more. But number one, the successes were some of the greatest in American history. And number two, Proverbs 18.12 says, but humility comes before honor. George Washington was known as the father of the nation. Abraham Lincoln was known as the savior of the nation. Now, I'm sure that Abraham Lincoln would uh, dismiss that epithet, but 
That was his nature. He rescued a nation. God used him. But God had to first crush the man that would save the nation. I think there are a lot of implications of this for us in our lives because God does not want us standing on a stage. He wants us standing on his platform. Referring to the Messiah in Isaiah 53.10, it says, he was crushed. And two verses later says, I will give him a portion among the great. Can I just say that if we are to walk in his footsteps, Jesus' footsteps, the footprint we leave behind cannot be our own. It must, we must be crushed before we are crowned, and it is always and only God who will do the crowning. You see, a stage promotes me and personal fame and glory. A platform promotes Christ, his fame, and his glory alone. Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. In the book of Daniel, we see an interesting example of both sides of this issue. Nebuchadnezzar was probably the, the greatest king of his time, king of Babylon. They were crushing nations. And in chapter 3 of Daniel, he wants everyone to bow down to this image, and it is interesting that the same Aramaic word for image is used in chapter 2, that portion of Daniel is written in Aramaic, and in chapter 2, that same word is used, but it's, it's the image or icon that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about, and he, he and his kingdom are the head made of gold. So I don't think it's coincidental that the very next chapter he creates this huge image all of which is gold, and says, bow down to this image. I don't know, maybe it was an image of him, we're not told. But as he is lifted up in pride, saying anyone who does not will be thrown into the fiery furnace, the very next chapter, we are told that he is utterly and completely humiliated. He actually goes insane. And for what we believe to be about seven years, he was released into the wild. Very probably the hanging, Babel, hanging gardens of Babylon, which were absolutely huge. But it says he grew his hair long, his fingernails were long, and he acted like an animal and ate grass. The man was insane. And Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, and Daniel had prophesied to him just before that happened. This is what's going to happen to you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. See, Daniel was, Daniel had a platform. God had raised him up not to be honored, but to honor God. And he spoke into Nebuchadnezzar's life as a confidant of the king and said, you're going to be cut down like a tree, and all that will be left is a stump. Until you humble yourself and come to the conclusion that it is only God in heaven alone, him alone, who has all dominion, and power, and it is his kingdom that will endure forever. And until you recognize that, you will remain humbled. Nebuchadnezzar went insane, but he finally came to this point, coming to his senses, that there is only one true God in heaven, and he honored him. And it says his senses, his mind was given back to him, his throne was given back to him, and God honored him. After he had crushed him. Daniel, on the other hand, was a humble man, constantly honoring God and his commands. And God began to build a platform for Daniel, not a stage on which Daniel would play and others honor him, but a platform on which he would have access to two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius of Persia, and impact them so profoundly that they both declared together, I mean, separately, but with, with the same words, that there's only one God in heaven, and it is his dominion that will last forever and ever. You see, if, if we are to step on God's platform, he must first do something here in our hearts. He did it in Nick Foles. He did it in Abraham Lincoln. He did it in Nebuchadnezzar. He did it in Daniel, who was eventually raised to second in command of all of Babylonia that Persia had taken over. 
That's a platform. So I want to ask you, what is, what are your aspirations? Because many times God puts aspirations in people's hearts or they pursue their own, but they lead them to either a stage or a platform. So what are the aspirations in your heart? What do you dream about? What do you think about? What do you say, God, use me here? What do you dream one day of being able to do? Because for many of us, it's a stage. Maybe it's the stage of a Super Bowl or the NBA. Maybe it's a concert stage of the Amway Center where the accolades of good grades were voted valedictorian or president of your class. Maybe it's promotions in your corporation. Maybe it's recognition from the boss. Maybe it's to be an author, a well-known author, of course, a statesman or recognized and awarded physician, businessman, or pastor. Let me remind you again, before honor is humility. We must be crushed to be crowned. He must build your platform. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. And all I can say is if we are pursuing our own aspirations for our own personal gain, God will need to take that dream in your heart and turn it on its head. And many times there is a wrecking, a crushing that takes place. Uh, Stephen, I'm not seeing Stephen here. Here he is up here. But Stephen led the teen Bible study. Uh, I thought it interesting. I'd forgotten that this is what we were, they were going to be doing, and God had laid this sermon on my heart. And then Stephen did a Bible study that we are right now going to be looking at a portion of, and it's in Isaiah 6. So you can turn it up. Let me just double check there. Um, yes, Isaiah 6. And excellent job, by the way, Stephen. Excellent job. And just realizing, you know, as, as teens are going through life, at some point they need to not ride on the coattails of their parents' religion or faith in Christ, I should say, but rather on their own. But to do that, something needs to happen here first. They need to be undone. They need to say, as Peter did, Lord, depart from me. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. And when you recognize your depravity apart from Christ, that's when he can rescue you. That's when he can change you and be your savior. So are you there then in Isaiah chapter 6? You see, right here, we have a, an interesting situation. It's, it's in chapter 6, but if we were to have laid... If God were to have laid Isaiah out chronologically, it would really be chapter 1. But for all intents and purposes that God knows, and we can sometimes figure out, he, he gives us five chapters of prophecy, then he gives us Isaiah's commissioning. I just don't understand chronologically, it would have been chapter 2. So what does he see? At the end of Uzziah's life, actually a fairly godly king reigned for a number of years, the longest of any, any king of Judah. He dies, and the year that he dies, the king of Judah dies. The king of heaven is now seen in Isaiah's vision. And he is seated on a throne in the temple. And his robe, his kingly robe, fills the entire temple. And angels, seraphs, are flying, six wings. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they are singing this, probably over and over about the holiness of God, the pillars in the temple begin to shake. And, it, and, there, and it's, it's filled with smoke and Something very profound is beginning to unfold for Isaiah as he captures this vision of God's holiness. Skipping ahead, God asks, who will go for us to warn the people of Israel? And Isaiah says, here am I, 
send me. See, that's, that's God's commissioning. Isaiah said, yes, send me. And God, God commissions him. But I want us to see what happens just prior to that. Here am I, send me. Because when Isaiah sees the holiness and the glory of God, it undoes him. Now that's the King James word right there. It says, woe to me. He, I cried, verse 5, I am undone. That's how the King James reads. The NIV and the NASB says, I am ruined. Now I personally like this word ruined as opposed to undone. When I undo my shoelace, I can quickly tie it again. When I am trying to solve a problem, I can easily erase it and undo it if it's wrong, and I can correct it, assuming I'm using pencil. Um, when you undo things, sometimes it's a fairly simple process, just not here. And for that reason, the later translators of the NASB NIV Translate this word, not undone, but I am ruined. The Hebrew word means destroyed, that is beyond repair. It also means, interestingly, to be put to silence. So in other words, he's saying, I am ruined by my sin and guilt and have nothing to say in my defense. I cannot undo my sin. I am beyond personal Repair. I am guilty. What is done? Is Isaiah, because of his sin, to be kind of kicked to the curb, so to speak? And, and you know, you're unfit for ministry, so sorry, I'll just look for someone else. You see, that's not the heart of God. Isaiah has a very sobering moment when he is viewing the holiness and the utter glory of God and he is overwhelmed. I am completely unfit to even stand in the presence of God. I understand this is a vision and I am completely unfit to be, even be here and here is God's remedy. A seraph takes a coal with tongs from the altar of the Lord and he presses it against the lips of Isaiah. This is a vision. Yes. He presses it against his lips and it purges him. It is a symbolic act of purging him of his sin and of his guilt. He is purified. God cleanses Isaiah. There is nothing that Isaiah could do. Isaiah was beyond being undone because he could not redo. See, he was ruined. Like a piece of fruit is ruined. It's gone. Nothing I can do about it. And it is only God that can make that which is ruined renewed. And so God renews him. God forgives him, cleanses him, and now he is ready. Here am I. Send me. If we have never allowed God to ruin us, understand how I'm using that word, given the opportunity, we will end up building a stage instead of a platform. And so as a result, Isaiah becomes one of the most well-known prophets of the Old Testament. May I confess to you, he is my favorite. I love reading Isaiah. I mean, I like reading Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel too. I, I, I do. Daniel's like right up there, but I love Isaiah. I love how God used Isaiah. I love what God prophesied through Isaiah. Read all 12 verses of Isaiah 53. Write that chapter down, by the way. Isaiah 53, all 12 verses. There was a man in the New Testament in Acts 8 that got saved by reading that. 
Because it all points to Jesus. It is a phenomenal window into heaven and into the future of who Jesus is and what he was going to accomplish. Because even though symbolically a coal was touched to Isaiah's lips and he was forgiven, that forgiveness was found ultimately in Isaiah 53 where he says, Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the Messiah, the iniquity, the sin of us all. How prophetic and profound is that? So let me just say it again. That if we have never allowed God to ruin us, given the opportunity, we will end up building a stage instead of a platform. Nick Foles, Abraham Lincoln, for them, God built a platform. For each of them, he built a platform. It wasn't about them. It's not about Nick Foles. He understands that. It is about God. It is about lifting up the glory of God, the majesty of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so that is what we proclaim. That is why God gives us a platform and not a stage. Now, I'm just going to challenge you, warn you today, if you're standing on a stage, you need to get off the stage. If it's about you, and receiving the accolades of men, you need to step away. You need to let God undo you. You need to let him wreck you and ruin you. And you need to allow the Spirit of God to completely renew you. Because it is in that renewed state, in Christ, humbled, yes, even crushed, where Mike Curtis and his flesh are ruined, that God births something in us and begins to open doors of opportunity. You might think, okay, opportunity, what, are, what exactly is that? What, what are we getting at there? Opportunity. Let's, let's look at Matthew 25. Can you turn there? We're going to spend the rest of our time there. Matthew 25. <laughs> I think people have recognized, perhaps more recently than later, that there has been a misunderstanding of this passage for some time. It is the parable of the talents. I'm going to read just a few verses to you, and you're going to see how we're going to connect the dots with what we're talking about this morning. Matthew 25, verses 14 and 15. I'm not going to get into the whole parable. I don't have time for that. But I do want us to see something here in these two verses. Again, it will be like, that is the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another, two talents, and to another, one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. What are these talents? Because it says that they are the property of the man who is leaving, the master. They are his property that he then entrusts to his servants, listen, according to their abilities. So they have a certain ability something that is a deposit that they can use out in the world, and the master gives them something that's not theirs, but entrusted to them according to their ability for them then to use for the master. Now, here's where we get into some misunderstanding. Our English word talent, like a skill, Marla's playing of the piano and, and Madeline and Jenny Rose and Meredith and, and Juju's singing and, and Zach's drum. All of these are, these are talents. I don't want to leave Brian out. Brian's bass playing, of course. You know, the, yes. These are talents. And we can build these talents. Now, I'm not going to say Marla was born with the ability to play the piano. She had to learn that. I don't think she woke, she, she woke up one morning at age two and just started playing Mozart. I don't, think that, I don't think it happened that way, did it? 
But she eventually learned and has become very skilled at it because there's an, an innate ability for music there. She actually plays numerous minis, uh, instruments. But that's a talent. You see, that's an ability that she has. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because <clears throat> our word talent actually comes from this parable. Now, do you see the confusion? Because it's not the talent of gold or silver that is a talent. It's the ability. Talents given according to a the servant's abilities. It's the servant's abilities. That's his talent, his intelligence, his skills, his abilities. It is the talent that God gives them, not our personal talent as we use that word today. It is God's talents. It is something that God entrusts to them. It might be something like family, a wife and children, that God then entrusts to us. I'm now bringing it out of the parable. He entrusts to us, and according to our ability, skills, talents, intelligence, uh, and such, that we can now bring them to Christ. Uh, build them up in Christ, uh, see them used for the extending of the kingdom of God. Uh, there's many things how God might be able to skill them so that God would raise them up maybe in politics or business or an educational system so that God gives them a platform from which they declare Christ and his kingdom. But these are, these are the talents that God can give. He might give you a family a wife and children. He, maybe he's going to give you money. That's the literal understanding here because these talents were money, actually about 60 to 80 pounds of either gold or silver. Whew, that's a lot. You don't carry that in your back wallet, right? Uh, this is not spare change. Okay. 60 to 80 pounds of silver or gold, that's a talent. Money. Money was entrusted. Maybe God has entrusted money to you. How are you using that? Do you tend to spend it as soon as you get it? Do you tend to spend it on self? Do you, do you tend to, you know, it's, it's just for your weekends and the bills? And the, or has God given you a heart to be generous? You know, it, it never ceases to amaze me how Juliana, and God has blessed her and her business with Verizon and she's doing well, and, and she just looks for every single opportunity possible to give, 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 give. Oh, you don't need, I'm going to give anyway. Give, 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 give. And, and because that's in her heart. And so God has entrusted something in, in her because she has an ability. Now, part of that ability, church, is character. You see, that's why to be entrusted with these talents, we must first be broken. And God must build character. Because all of this, including character, your abilities, is what God is looking for. Can I entrust second in command of an entire nation to someone here? I see a Daniel. Yes, I see what I've been building in him. I want to give him that platform. Not a stage. It's not about Daniel. But it's about the glory of God. I'm going to give him the platform. Maybe your talent or what God has entrusted to you is possessions. Maybe education. How are you going to use? Teens, how are you going to use your education? I can, I'll be honest with you. When I was going through high school and I gave my heart to Christ, I want to be a pastor or a missionary or evangelist or something. And uh, I, I got, because I was doing well in, in uh, uh, math, uh, they put me in calculus. Wonderful. How on earth am I ever going to need to know the area under a curve when I'm counseling someone or preaching from a sermon? Can I just use that right now as a sermon illustration? Let me help you understand the area of right. Never. And I had a bad attitude about certain aspects of my education. But can I tell you that your education isn't just knowledge that you're going to use, but it, it, it does something to you. It helps you Think clearly, and that's what math does, by the way. Helps you think logically. And even though I've never needed to know the area under a curve, and by the way, I have no idea what that formula is anymore. <laughs> and I'm saying I'm grateful. But th the truth is, God did something through that class to equip me, to use me. God is going to, God is going to educate some of you more than others because he is he's wanting to give you a platform. He may have you move immediately into business because he's wanting to build a platform for you. And it's just 
didn't include more education, that's all. But use your education because God wants to use that in your life. That's a talent that he has given you, something he's entrusted to you. Homeschooling moms, do I need to keep going here? <laughs> um, a job promotion. How about that? God wants to entrust a job promotion to you. Can I just ask you? Would it, what if God were to do that? You know, Cole recently, I, I guess we could call it a job promotion, doing much better financially and, and opportunities. He's now a manager in, in construction and, might I just say, working a lot of hours. But um, it's a wonderful opportunity for him. You see, these talents include opportunities. And these opportunities then become your platform on which God wants you to stand and declare Christ have some impact on the people around you. So God's going to use Cole, as he is now overseeing many people, to, as God opens the doors, to impact the people around him. But God looked at Cole and said, let me see your abilities. They just opened, let me see them. I like that. I like, you know those years in which I had to crush you? It is for this moment here. Mm. God wants to build in us the necessary things from which, him, from which he will build a platform. If you desire an opportunity or a platform to be used by God, allow him them to qualify you as he qualified Isaiah, as he qualified so many. Allow him to qualify you as he desires. He will do this for you. Remember again, Proverbs 25, 27. Nor is it honorable to seek one's own honor. That's God's job. That's God's job. I did say we were going to conclude with Matthew 25, didn't I? I'm not so truthful, sorry. Psalm 78. And we will, just checking, yes. We will conclude with this. Psalm 78. Just a, a passage about David that is very, very important, I believe. And in Psalm 78, verse 70, he says, referring to the Lord, Yahweh, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. Do you remember anybody else who was a shepherd that God made chief leader? Yeah, Moses. Shepherd for 40 years in the backside of a desert, a nobody that God had to crush before he crowned. And David, verse 72, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. What did David do? What did David bring to the table? What were his abilities? Integrity of heart and skills. What did he do? He ended up shepherding the people of Israel. God brought him from the, 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 the fields of sheep, tending stupid, dumb sheep, if you know anything about sheep. So easily led astray. Not like me. But anyway, he, he, David had to work with these sheep that just would refuse to follow his direction. And he had to acquire these skills and abilities to lead these dumb animals. Do you maybe see the connection of him becoming king now? And so here he is, as God has placed him in, in one of the most humbling of jobs, a, really a nobody, but God was building something in him even then and making him this amazing worshiper who was a man after God's heart. You know what that means? He ran after God's heart. He apprehended the very heart of God. He wanted nothing else because God was supreme in his life. He, he, that is what he longed for. Read some of these Psalms. Many of them are the result of that field time with God. Playing his harp or lyre, L-Y-R-E, by the way, and, and just worshiping God before he was a king, he had a worshiper's heart. He was a man after God's own heart. But it wasn't just one day in which God said, yep, you're the man. 
we're going to crown you today and you're going to become king. I wish it were, (laughs) David probably wished it were that simple. It was not. David had to be crushed, decimated, pulverized. You can read some of this in the Psalms. Before he becomes king, he writes a number of Psalms. In the cave of Adullam, perhaps one of his moments of utter despair, feeling all alone, being chased by King Saul, falsely accused that he was some conspirator in King Saul's kingdom. And God had raised him up and given him a platform and Saul crushed it. There was a prophetic word that one day he would become king. How on earth are you going to do that, God? You have allowed King Saul to utterly, completely close the door on that one. And he's running for his life, hiding in cave after cave. And you know who finally God brings to him? Those who are disgruntled, in debt, bad attitudes, yet moldable men. 400 of them. Can you imagine 400 complainers, 400 grumblers? Oh my goodness. 400 of these that David begins to mold and shape. And he runs for his life for many years. And then finally, the moment comes. King Saul is killed in battle. David, from his reputation, has built many bridges with the elders in Judah. And they come to him at Hebron and say, we want you to be our king. We remember prophetic words that aren't necessarily recorded in Scripture, but were given. We remember those prophetic words. We want you to be our king. You see, God had to humble David so much. Can you imagine that time in, in Adullam? God, why are you allowing this in my life? Is this just is this out of your control? Have you forgotten me? Hello? What about me, God? And God would realize, wow, David, they're easy. There's so many more years. I still need to ruin you. I need you to come to the utter end of yourself, like right now, where you acknowledge there's no way I can. I can't make it. I can't go on. There's prophecies about it that maybe they're false. I don't, I don't know. But I know right now, I'm at the end of my rope. And there's a psalm that he writes in the cave of Adullam. God, would you come to me and send me men? Now, when he gets those 400 disgruntled men, I don't know, did he say, thanks a lot, God. I really appreciate that. But God answered his prayer, and God came to his rescue time and time again. At one point, Saul had almost caught him, and they were just doing this little, you know, what do you call it? Uh, musical chairs in which they're just running around this mountain. Saul is about to catch up to them, and he's ready to apprehend him. And trust me, he would have put David to death immediately, not take him captive. You might get away. I'm going to kill you right now. And David knows this, and he's saying, God, please, please help me. My life is in your hands. And King Saul gets the word the Amalekites are attacking, the Philistines are attacking. Come now. And he's drawn away from pursuit. And God rescues David. Maybe some of you feel, that's me. The enemy almost has me. He's got me pinned down. There's nowhere to go. God, I don't understand why you've allowed this tragedy upon tragedy in my life. I don't understand where you are at right now. And here is my question for you. Will you allow God right now in your circumstance to do what he needs to do? crush you, to show you again. This is not a stage that he is setting for you, but a platform. He is qualifying you. He is is knocking off those sharp edges. Now, trust me, when tragedy comes your way, it's easy to say, well, I would rather skip this tragedy. Is it just because he's trying to build some character? Can you imagine Lincoln when he loses his loved ones, you mean this is just to simply build a little bit of character in me? And I'm just going to answer that by saying, yes, but so much more. I have no idea what that so much more is, okay? Don't focus on that, but understand that you were in the crucible for a reason. And David was in that crucible for years, being refined. 
So what did God do? Verse 70, he chose David. He took him from the sheep, the sheep pens. He raised him up. Right now, we are in a battle. I've been preaching through a sermon series, the, the battle for peace. God is bringing you to this place, a platform. And he'll probably bring many platforms your way. Would you allow him to do something in your heart here? I could give you testimony after testimony in my life in which God has had to crush me. Sometimes it's because he needed to take care of sin issues. Sometimes it was just because he needed me to grow in wisdom, 2 Corinthians 11, to impart comfort so that I would be able to comfort others. Any number of reasons. Let God qualify you for that platform. Let God shape you and mold you as he did with Daniel and David and so many others in the, in the Bible, old and new. Even Jesus himself, he was crushed so that he might find a place among the great. And it says, and God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. But he had to crush him first. Can you stand with me? In that last song, we sang this line. It is not fame that I desire, nor stature in my brother's eyes. What is it? The cause of Christ. That is what I seek. Is that what you seek? Is that what you seek? Then let him qualify you every day. Father, we come before you, we're humbled be a little intrepid. Father, it's never easy to be refined. It is never easy to go through struggle or tragedy. And yet it is all in the scope of your love, and your grace, and you are in the process of endowing talents according to abilities so that one day, one day, you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. God, that's where I want to be. I look forward to that moment, God, God of, of your complete joy. But God, you're giving us platforms right now. May we be so faithful in how we use them, how we use these opportunities, these platforms that you send our way. May we be so faithful. May we always declare Jesus. May we always seek to exude the character of Christ and not the old me. Crush that person, God, and make me new every day to shine Jesus. Please, God, in Jesus' name.